0: Welcome to the Treadwells Podcast, with your host, Christina Oakley-Harrington, and very special guest, Gary Lockman. This podcast was recorded via Zoom on the 1st of June, 2020. For more podcasts and online content, such as our popular introductory video tutorials, please visit www.treadwells-london.com forward slash Treadwells online. Gary, it's great to have you here online. We are on a sunny late afternoon in London, um, on different sides of London, though. And uh, we're going to have a chat about the return of Holy Russia, which is your latest book, and about you and Russia. You and Russia, generally, and you and Russia and the occult, which has, has a long history. And, um, and there's a bit in your book where you talk about being on, the, on East Village as a young man and um, reading Dostoevsky and going to eat at Veselka, which I've also eat, eaten at Veselka many, many times. Oh. Um, excellent, excellent part of my, my childhood and my teenage years as well. It's, it's a big part of your imaginary, your, your inner life is Russia for a long time. Um,
1: tell me more about that. Uh, well, I mean, it's, um Well, that time when you're just talking about in the sort of late 70s, um, about 1980, I lived on the, over in in the East Village, and there was Veselko, Kiev, and then if you went a bit further east, there was uh, uh, Odessa, and it was a Ukrainian neighborhood. And um, well, it's, I mean, how should I say it? I mean, um, I became interested in it. In general, I mean, I say in the book, if I read Colin Wilson's The Outsider, and he has lots of stuff about Dostoevsky in it, And of course, I knew Dostoevsky and read a little bit, but it was after reading that that I kind of took the plunge. And then, um, you know, after that, just radiated out. And again, Wilson is one of these great writers because he introduces you to lots of other people. So there were people like Leonid Andreev. We mentioned in the book, there's this really great nihilist, right? If, have, if, if, if you could be a great nihilist, but you know, there's a really powerful nihilist writer. And then Mikhail Artsabashev wrote this novel called Sanin, which was a big hit here about a century ago, made a big splash here, um, about this kind of Nietzschean um, pagan uh, who just rejects all kind of bourgeois morality and just lives according to impulse and senses and all this sort of stuff. So I just got introduced to that. And then people like Brodayev and all that. And at different times in and out, um, you know, in my long career, <laughs> reading about it. But um, when I started writing, I just realized there was a lot there. And I, I did this, that book, um, The Douglas Book of the Occult, A Dark Muse. And uh, I, that's around the time we first met and I first sort of went, went to Trevor's way back when. And um, in there, I write about um, uh, Valerie Briusov and Andrzej Bieli, who were two of the big um, symbolists uh writers in in the silver age and they were both interested in the occult in, in different ways Bieli was um, a follower of Steiner um and he actually wrote a little book about reminiscences of Steiner and Steiner it's was amazing. very big was very big and then Biosov sort of in his own way so I mean there's that connection just in literature itself literature itself is, a, is
0: such a way into ideas particularly in uh well, every, everywhere, but I, we're talking about Russian literature in, in, in particular with the Russian symbolists. You, you, I love this quote that you have from, from the book. Um, it says that you know, the, for Bieli, uh, like the symbolists, he said, through art, life itself can be transformed. And um, the Russian symbolists who, who include uh, Mershkovsky and uh, his wife, and Bely, they're, they're, I mean, you know, it's extraordinary stuff, really. Huh. You know, it is, I mean, we're, we're, symbolism's having a bit of a, a moment, as, in, in as you know, esoteric art's having a moment, but um, with these Russian symbolists, they're going, they're going for this kind of really cosmic transformation thing um, that, you know, it seems to tie in with some of the stuff that you were talking about. But you know, Russia's sense of, of having a vision and the world and the transformation of the world, and where does mm. Russia sit within that? And um, it is—you're absolutely right. It was very early days of Treadwell's that it was because of you I was introduced to Andre Yellie and 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 the Daedalus Book of the occult This is this is wild stuff. Mm. This is really wild stuff. Very very subtle, um, but
1: driven. But very very driven. Um, I mean, um, it's going to say the other, um, I, I wrote a afterward to um, Beusov's novel The Fiery Angel, which is this fantastic um, account of uh, sort of like uh, 15th century. Um, strange, weird, uh, sadomasochistic uh, affair between this, you know, this knight who meets this woman who's uh, chasing after this angel, and he winds up having to attend a coven and all that. And it's, it's like Wiesmann's La Bar, uh in the sense that it's, well, it's, it's very meticulous. It's sort of like, it's, it's, um, though he's, he's sort of much more harder, hard as nails kind of right than Wiesman, but still it's just, he did a lot of research for it. So there's a lot of stuff in it that, uh, um, and he was more on the darker kind of side of the occult because it was the satanic um, fascination uh, during the silver age as well. I mean, then there were sort of like black magic clubs and things of that sort, um, but it goes back, I think to, um, I mean, Dostoevsky says in the idiot that beauty will save the world. And what I found out by doing this book is that art for the Russians, and of course I have to generalize, but art for the Russians, it's salvific. It has, it's, it's supposed to save them. The Westerners want to be satisfied. We want to be entertained. I mean, aesthetically, it could be deep and all that, but it, we, we, you know, we, we, we talk about the high priests of art, but we don't mean it in quite the same way. And this goes back to, I would say, when the Russians first adopted Greek Orthodox Christianity, when um, Queen Olga went to Constantinople, and she was basically overwhelmed by the beauty Um, of Hagia Sophia and you know the dome and the glittering icons and all this kind of thing. So there seems to me That they're just in the Russian soul Russian psyche There's this whole idea that somehow beauty is part of this transfigured world and the symbolists are you know They're suggesting it, you know, they're 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 you know, it's not you know They can't pin it down But their art is suggestive and elusive and it creates effect of some aura or halo of, of something some significance in the background um and yeah i mean that whole idea about art being able to transform life that got picked up in the early days of the revolution there's a lot of um symbolist sort of techniques using the theater that became part of the kind of agitprop um in in the very early days
0: so you you talked you mentioned the silver age um for for listeners who aren't familiar with with the russian silver age what years does it span um and who's and who's the czar at the time
1: uh, well, it's a couple, but it's uh, roughly uh, eighteen ninety to about just 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 after just about the same time as the Bolshevik Revolution. I mean, if you want to nineteen seventeen-ish, nineteen seventeen-ish. I mean, technically, let's say nineteen twenty-two okay. when you have this um, what's known as the philosophy steamers, um, and this is these are these two boats that um, Lenin um, exiled. People like Bradayev and, and and many other writers and poets and philosophers and literary critics and that he didn't want to just eliminate because the press would have been too bad, but he didn't want mm-hmm. to be there anymore. Because I mean, Lenin completely turned all that around. He got fed up with all the symbolists. Was, well, just to... L- Lenin's whole trip was to eliminate inwardness. No such thing as an inner world. We're completely, you know. Um, you know,
0: Never mind your inner life you b
1: f b f Skinner and all that were completely you know controlled by the environment around us that 's why he was extremely optimistic if you create the so called right environment, you can recreate human beings to be nice you know human beings all getting together and marching along in the, towards the classless society and all this so this is the thinking, so he had to get rid of all these guys he so that 's the
0: end of the silver age but I some you, yeah. you talk about the silver Age sages you know the silver Age an era mm-hmm. in which you have these um sages these wise these wise people um or, or people who who are offering again this kind of you know uh, salvific millenarian radical end of well the transformative of well um prophetic teachings um and and and, and philosophy and of course this is also the era of rasputin
1: yeah yeah
0: Tell us, t- who who do you love best? Um, Sil- Silver Age sages,
1: who's your favorite? Um, well, I mean, it's, uh, well, the one that I f- read of before I even sort of knew about that in you know, particular, and this goes back to when I'm living in New York in the late 70s, early 80s, was uh, Nikolai yeah. Um Because again, Wilson mentioned-
0: Why do you her, love him? What, who
1: is he well, and why do you love him? Uh, well, he's this, well, he's- Make me want to go th- on a date with him. <laughs> Well, I, um, I think he was fairly celibate, so you might not. I don't know. Depends how. Coffee date. <laughs> Maybe maybe Coffee in night. the days. Maybe in the days of Corona, uh, it might, that might be apt. But um, he um, he's one of these contradictory Russian characters that are typical of the, the Russians. They're able to. Uh, they capacious souls. They're able to hold opposites, and he was a, a Marxist, but also a Christian and an existentialist, uh-huh. and he was, uh, his, his fundamental idea was freedom, this nature of freedom, and he was deeply influenced by Jakob Burma Boehme and Burma's idea of the ungrund, this meonic freedom, which is a kind of pleuromic sort of thing, like the Gnostics, the, or the, the not this, not that, you know, neti neti, or the sunyata, some unmanifest, realm beyond which is the source of everything and this was something that he was absolutely so he had this he was this sort of spiritual aristocrat and uh uh he wrote in this oracular i mean it's philosophy but in the he's taking on hegel and nietzsche and visceral and everybody schopenhauer but he, he writes in this sort of not quite oracular but it is aphoristic it's a very you know bang bang um um you know uh sort of uh language and i just you know if you read one of his books, they're all pretty much the same. I don't mean to say they're not different, but in the sense that it's, um, he's talking about the same things in each of them. So you can sort of pick them up in bits and pieces. But there's one called The Meaning of the Creative Act that I think is a still a very powerful book that was published in 1918. But he says, creativity is just as spiritual and just as devout as, you know, the more straightforward practices of the church. And he got excommunicated from, you know, the Orthodox Church because he was too radical. But I mean, I knew of him already and it was through he he has um autobiography called dream and reality and he i think he died about 1949 1950 but in that that's like a very good source for the silver age because he was there and he knew everybody um you know i mean uspensky was part of that and uspensky who if you know him you know him as uh, you know the most readable sort of exponent of, of, of gurdjieff's work but he was a poet and a writer and a journalist and a theosophist and he was lecturing in that milieu um, in which theosophy was very big but Steiner more than Blavatsky. They didn't like Blavatsky because um, well mostly because she was very critical of the, the Christian sort of tradition and um, it's their esotericism is very Christianized and that's why Steiner was able to um, um, you know communicate there because of his theosophy is very highly christianized and all that yeah
0: anthroposophy yeah. um and where is where were the big centers in russia for this where were the if, I, well, if, well, if
1: st. I st petersburg um uh sort of initially but you know moscow as well i mean most of the uh but the st petersburg where they have you have these you have these suicide clubs this black magic clubs you have uh yes and rasputin's going on and just like today, there's the media, and so it's all sensational covers of, lurid covers of sort of resputin like characters leering over, you know, barely clad women who are cowering and all this kind of things, sort of Svengali effect. Uh, plus a lot of satanic, i say so a lot of satanic imagery and all that. Um, uh, 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 Chia, Chialapin, I can't remember to pronounce his name right now, he was a famous opera singer at the time. And he uh, did this fantastic, uh, well, apparently, I, I didn't hear it, um, rendition of Faust. And, and this, again, this, is some, so this was something that was very much in the air, It's very transgressive, a mm-hmm. um, lot of drugs. Um, there were different cults, the Calisti and the Scalopsy. I mean, Diele's early novel, The Silver Dove, is about um, a Calisti kind of cult and where there's this blasphemous marriage between this disaffected intellectual and uh, the hideous earth mother or whatever who's the head of the cult or something and this is supposed to produce the mother child and um so you have all that kind of stuff happening and um it in a way it's just for some reason never really communicated um and it was happening at the same time as things happening here in london and and things happening in Paris. And you know. Paris, I'm
0: thinking, I'm thinking yeah, so much yeah, yeah. of, we, we think of Paris very, very much with the, with the black masses, with Wiesemann, uh, with drugs, with decadence, yeah. with transgressive cults, um, and, of course, uh, occultism. So um, but you, in, in, in the Silver Age in Russia, you, there's also, there's, there's more occultism that is familiar than I expected there to be before I started reading, like Martinism, um, mm, and Papus yeah. and Freemasonry. I didn't realize that Freemasonry was quite so big in Russia.
1: Yes, yes, it was. Uh, and, e- you know, even earlier than that, that period. I mean, there's um, the uh, debate whether Peter the Great was um, initiated or not on his uh, famous trip where he supposedly went anonymously, but he was six foot six. So it was hard to, hard to miss him. Uh, where he went to you know england and other other places um like netherlands as well and learning about the modern world to bring it back to build uh, st petersburg is the story that he was initiated um in a you know, freemasons hall in london um and that he had a secret occult library um but yes uh, uh, this the um what is it the um strict obedience the right of strict obedience uh, baron hund uh this apparently was very popular there, and uh, Saint-Martin later on, uh, his works were um, read widely, and they trickled down to, you know, um, the czars, Alexander I. Uh, he's the one where Russia gets the idea or the name of the tag of Holy Russia after defeating Napoleon, after saving Europe, you know, from, from the little corporal. Um, he is a reader of uh, Eckhart Hausen. And Franz von Bader and people of that sort, and uh, even the Holy Alliance is supposed to be in some way based on some ideas of Franz von Bader's things of that sort. so I mean these kind of ideas trick I mean, like they trickled up, I guess. I guess I don't know if you can trickle up, but they, they raised up uh, into these seats of power, and um, yeah, it was very much out in the open too. it wasn't something that's hidden, you know it's, there's no conspiracy theories, it's just stuff that's there. no strikes us as odd because we don't think these things well maybe not us because you know we're in this milieu but the average person oh the idea that solely occulted oh, the mystical is somehow um permeating uh politics well it really isn't that strange if you you know just go back and do i
0: think work. i mean i i don't know a huge amount about russian culture but from from what little i know you've got the hesychasm movement you've always got these crazy crazy mystics crazy hermits crazy prophets seem to be an in- um, a feature of Russian culture, you know, and, and, and long, long established as as a as an as a known role. Um so like you get Ross Rasputin doesn't come out of nowhere. The anonymous Well Siberia
1: um, it's almost nowhere.
0: <laughs> but you know funny. the idea of the of, of, of the mad mystic who who mm. sees things who who's, who's got prophecies and, and special powers i mean i mean right he's russia knows people like that russian russian society knows people like that it, it it's it's yeah. you know well, i think the remarkable be, it, he you know. seems stranger to westerners i think than he does to russians mm. as a phenomenon um, or, or have i got
1: that wrong No, I think it's, um, well, it's like, you know, Germany produces um, astrologers and the French have a lot of alchemists and England has more ghosts per per square mile than, you know, anywhere else. And the the Russians produce these mages, these kind of characters of intense natural kind of power. Um, As Putin's one of them, Matt Blavatsky is another one. Gurdjieff wasn't really Russian ethnically, but he emerged out of that um, that milieu, and you know, so not quite the same, but in, in that in that kind of ballpark. And you also have the phenomena of the starets, which are these um, men in the church, but they're not necessarily in a position of power in any kind of hierarchy, but they have great inner spiritual power, and they just impress by their own aura, basically. And,
0: and, uh, all of the, the characters that we've named or that you've just named there are people who had huge explosive personalities and hugely contradictory sides to their characters. Um, Madame Blavatsky, famous for her temper tantrums, Rasputin, um, clearly, clearly uh, highly unusual even in his everyday demeanor. Um, in a way that English society, I don't think, could cope with that is are these is and Gurdjieff himself, you know, uh, very yeah. very extreme personality. I mean, and and you yourself talk about like you know how, how Russian, the Russian man or the uh-huh. Uh-huh. the Russian ca- the, it, Russian society uh, coping with huge personalities that have yeah. huge contradictory qualities, and that and that Russian people in Russian society can have long been able to understand that a holy person can um, throw their breakfast across. <laughs> the, the, you know, throw their breakfast across the room and, and start swearing, which Madame Lovatsky did regularly. And the, the, this was part and parcel of, uh, of a person's holiness. It didn't completely invalidate their, religi- their, in, invalidate their validity, but you, you see what I'm trying to say.
1: Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this notion of Russian man, um, this is something that comes from um, Hermann Hesse, you know, the German uh, novelist, 1919 he published a collection of essays called glimpse into chaos and um, two short essays but they're mostly about Dostoevsky's novels and he talks about this character Russian man who said before is this contradictory um, huge soul that can contain opposites and these polar tensions uh, in a way that westerners just couldn't you know it would be like you know completely having a nervous breakdown all the time and they're somehow able to do and there's the explosive um, turbulent you know, primal energies. And this is one of the things Berdayev says is that the Russians have this huge primal kind of energy, but they have no sense of order and no sense of kind of form. And they usually adopt another kind of sense of form from some other culture and then make it into their own. And this is something that other historians of Russia have said, they're very good at taking something turning into something almost new, but it had other roots, and, and much of the occultism in the Silver Age came from France, and, and the symbolism came from France as well. So, but um, of themselves, there were these turbulent kind of, you know, just primal forces, and um, uh, this was a threat to the West, as uh, I said, because uh, the Western logical, sequential, you know, left brain, you know, whatever you want to say, um, just can't understand, you say, they're completely can't, can't understand it. And um, I mean, the Russians themselves trying to deal with it. And uh, you, have, you have that explosive side and they also have um, the sedentary, uh, docile, bovine kind of uh, character. There's like the novel uh, Oblomov, uh, and there's even a condition called Oblomovism, which is somebody, I mean, Oblomov, it takes him a chapter, get out of bed. And in the rest of the book, he's sitting by the fire. And then you, you have this sense that every now and then you need an Ivan the Terrible to turn up, who's this you know, you know, incredibly, what do you want to call it? A destructive force in many ways, uh, or at least prouding force. And so this tyrant comes and shakes them up and all that. So there are these wild contradictions in their, in, in their soul. And it's uh, something that, yeah, this was supposed to be like, a, this was the, a wave was coming, you know, Dostoevsky was sort of the, the, the presage of this wave that was coming to, to the West because the West was in decline. And I would say this is something that has got back in the news these days, the, the same kind of language and the same kind of um, comparison between a, a West that's on its way out and uh, this rising new Eurasian um, super culture, new civilization that's supposed to be emerging uh, is you know, very much like you know what, what they were talking about a hundred years ago, a little bit more.
0: Yeah, you said that about the, the, the idea that in the Silver Age and then a revival of it, of the Russians framing themselves as Eurasian. And I imagine it must be so frustrating to be seen, as, as you you point out, you know, as the poor man, the poor cousin of Europe. You know, always mm. always twenty years behind, always fifty years behind. Perhaps yeah. not viewed as not quite so civilized. You know, half you know wild, beast, super passionate, um, and all of those things that are not quite European, but at the same time hugely visionary, hugely mystical, and hugely philosophically uh, cultivated. Um, and so they, they are framing themselves as Eurasian then, and reviving of that idea now. Trying to, you know, a, 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 a culture that's seeing itself, um, trying to frame itself not in, con, in contradistinction to 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 Western Europe, which which kind of can't, can't make head nor tail of them. <laughs> um, and, and how's that going? You know, how did that go? Well, with and how's it going
1: a, now? That's a good question. It's, that's been going on, apparently, for quite some time. You know, Peter the Great sort of really gives it a real push, but even before then. Um, but uh, I guess the most recent, you know, attempt at that was in the 90s when the Soviet Union collapsed. And then there was this. Uh, russian Spring, in a way where you know okay we 're open for democracy now and the free market and all that, and that didn 't take, and it led to you know gangster politics and the you know collapse of the ruble and everything, and the strong man um, Vladimir Putin um, emerged and has been around ever since more or less um, and um, this is something that 's a story throughout russian history it 's like uh, are we part of europe or aren 't we um, I mean, this at the time of the Silver Age, the idea that Russia, different people like Hesse, like Spengler, like Steiner, Russia had the potential to be this bridge between the East and the West. This was the idea, and the, the you know it was supposed to wed the sort of you know technological, um, scientific knowledge of the West with the deeper you know mystical you know intuitive side of the East into something new. And this was supposed to be this new cultural epoch that the silver age all talking about everyone was expecting then The Bolsheviks arrived and put it on hold until now when it's being sort of brought back in. Um, and, um, this was, um, yeah, this, these were these, these, these powers that were just, um, at work throughout its whole, its whole history. I mean, in one way, you can look at Russian history is all about the question of what does it mean to be Russia? Um, Mm -hmm. which most countries ask themselves at different times, but Russia seems to be asked itself that practically throughout all of its
0: You say that Putin is asking um, people or encouraging people to read three philosophers, Soloviev, um, Berdiev, and Illyrian, uh, who's yeah. probably mispronounced. Um, Illyan, yeah. Illyan. So you got he, – he, he's certainly thinking about Russian identity. What does it mean? What does Russia mean? What is Russia's vision? What is its mission? Um, and, and you know, he's sort of name-dropping these. and Are people scurrying off to read them? And if so, what, what are –
1: what, what do you summarize from what he thinks the vision of Russia is? Well, I mean, he's, you know, um, it's, I mean, how this happened was that um, the, the, my previous book, Dark Star Rising, I had a chapter on Russia in there and um, his fellow Alexander Dugan and all his links to Evola and Alt-Right and all that kind of stuff. And, um, but there was a lot of stuff I read that, you know, I couldn't use in the book. And I thought, oh, there's, there's more stuff there, you know, the stuff there for a book. And then I got this kind of thing to, you know, string it together was when I saw an article about um, 2015. As you say, Putin had suggested to his regional governors to read these philosophers from them, the Silver Age. And two of them I knew, Anupadayev and Solovyov. Ilyin, I didn't know. Um, and he's the most political, you know, actually of, of the three. And he's the one that really has most influenced Putin. Uh, but how much Putin himself reads these people? I, I don't know. you know it's not you know I'm not to me, it's just interesting that he suggested them. And the book isn't really about him. Um, mm. I mean, he's there, yeah. and uh, more or less, I'm commenting on what he's doing because he's actually he is taking part in this revival of holy Russia. He's you know gone to religious sites, and you know he's been at the opening of cathedrals and things of that sort. Um, and he's a politician and a tactician, and I'm sure he does everything, not just for everyone's edification or his own. Uh, so I mean, that's all in the back, but it just was interesting to me that he was suggesting these people. And I saw the response from the New York Times, David Brooks. Um, and, you know, I didn't expect him to applaud it, but I just thought how they characterize Berdaev and Soloviev um, as- So for, those... for
0: listeners who aren't really sorry, familiar okay. with these, for, for, for the listeners who haven't read those three, uh, what's, the general, what's the general gist of those philosophers that would tell you what Putin uh, yeah. has in mind when he's recommending them?
1: Well, I mean, they're, they're, well, I think the general thing is that they're from this period called the Silver Age, and he's reclaiming that. Mm-hmm. It's like all that was put on hold with the Bolsheviks and then with the collapse of the Soviet Union. In the late 90s, when it was, you know, perestroika and all and Glasnost was happening, a lot of that stuff that had been forbidden was being republished again. So they had a, you know, resurgence of interest in the occult and mystical writers and all these other people that, you know, just weren't available. And so by the time it all collapsed. So many of these people that had been banned or people that actually had been in the gulag were, were heroes now. Um, so, he's, so-
0: he's, he's, am I right? Am I got you I, I right to saying that by recommending philosophers from the Silver Age, he's reclaiming Russia as a place of ideas, as a mm. culture of ideas well, and philosophy and, and mysticism and vision um, at, from, from the materialism of, of the Soviet era?
1: Oh, yeah, yes, yes. And also currently from the materialism of the West. Okay. Because uh, Russian philosophy in itself arose as a critique of Western philosophy, which by the time... You don't really have Russian philosophy until the late 1870s. I mean, you have thinkers, you have moralists, you have social thinkers, but Slovyov is the sort of first official Russian philosopher. He's talking about metaphysics and, you know, what is the good and what is beauty. And the book that he... that uh, Putin suggested was this huge book of Slovy called the justification of the good where he's basically that's what he does he, he philosophically justifies gives you know reason and grounding for notions of the good at different levels and places and you know what is the good here and this and that kind of thing so they're not you know they're not this blood and guts you know kind of uh, yeah Russia is the greatest thing in the world uh, although all three of these thinkers in different ways had uh, as I said this kind of notion that in some way Russia would be able to Produce a kind of synthesis of these two things, you know, this Western materialism and this other, their their roots in this Asian Eastern kind of thing, and and somehow complement what was rising up. And what, getting off, but that was the whole idea. I mean, they're they're very concerned with the inner world, you know, which the West West had got sort of, you know, rid of. You know, the West, mainstream Western philosophy wasn't really interested, or the mainstream Western, you know, scientific reductive you know, a point of view, just wasn't interested in all. Everything was material, everything was cause and effect, positivism. And so it was all in a reaction to that. That's why... So
0: it's, it almost seems to me, perhaps I'm, I'm overstating it, but more the yeah. mystical end of philosophy.
1: Yeah, sure, sure, um, sure, sure. You know, but the sure, matters yeah. of
0: the soul, the matters yeah. of of goodness and, and highest ideals and things of, of that nature. And I, I yeah, particularly if they're positing themselves against, yeah, not only the Soviets, but also... Putin, Putin responding not only to, to
1: Soviet era, but also to yeah, Western materialism. Um, because, because the thing now, the Cold War now isn't between communism and capitalism. It's between um, the decadent materialist uh, me economy, I call it in the mm-hmm. book, oriented West, where everything is available. Everything is, you know, you can buy anything you want and every, you can adapt anything to the way you want it when you want it now, which they like, like, they they like that to be now, but you know, and Putin is presenting Russia as, you know, the last bearer of traditional values, you know, traditional gender roles, traditional family roles, traditional social, whatever hierarchies rooted in the church, rooted in these philosophical absolutes, not in the relativism of the West where everything is, you know, negotiable and all that. So, I mean, how, I'm not saying St. Putin, I, I, you know, I I don't know how much he really believes that I'm not interested in how much he really believes. And of course I sort of say, well, you know, of course he's a politician. I'm just interested in that's how it is. You know, yeah. I'm interested in these philosophical ideas, because I do think that the ideas, the general sense of ideas that came out of the silver age, which was about somehow compensating for this Western over intellectualizing or, you know, Scientism it would be today positivism to scientism today i mean that that still is there it's even you know ratcheted up more over the last hundred years
0: you see so, well, you said that Steiner was really big in the silver Age and steiner is is profoundly you know obviously and overtly spiritual he's got a christian tinge um, and he's from his anthroposophy is cosmic it's very uh inclusive. It's very, yes. it's just got this sense of space in it. That's my, that's my feeling when I read China is how spacious mm. it is and how uh, it leans towards nature. It leans towards these highest ideals. Uh, it has a, a tremendous beauty to it. And I can see how if you, if you, if you got that going on and that's really, really strong in the silver age and that really is, is appealing in to, to Russian culture and, and mm. Russian ideas at the time, and and then you and then you get that all clamped down in you know with the with the, with the Soviet Revolution. Mm-hmm. Then you have got with well, the Russian Revolution, of course. Then you you got uh, so this sort of a tremendous seedbed of of mm. mysticism. I guess what I'm trying to say, you know, this is, yeah, the the, the philosophical in, engagements there do seem to have this mystical strand to yeah, them, that's, where that's, yeah. idealism.
1: No, you're exactly right. I mean, and the thing is, as I said earlier, they they, they got it from the West. I mean, what I say, I say in the end of the book is that what, what we know what the West had to offer Russia, that modernity, you know, Russia was still in the Middle Ages for a long time, you know, and the West had, was going and had trains and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, that's, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to diss Russia, just it's all the books. It's, you know, even says it and all that kind of thing. Uh, but, so we know what Russia could have got from the West, but what, did, what could the West get from Russia? Well, I say in the book, it was something that the West had, but it didn't want. Because the Russians picked up the like Schelling you know Natur philosophy again, this is around the same time as Hegel and all that I mean we know Hegel was very influential and Marx obviously was very influential, but uh, Friedrich Schelling was even more um, influential in the early days because um, again he's probably m- many people don't know who he was, but he was came out of the school of what was called Natur philosophy or this romantic school of philosophy in the early 1800s or late you know uh, 1700s and fundam- he's known for fundamental sort of Aphorism is, you know, um, nature is visible mind and mind is invisible nature. So instead of the very, you know, uh, rough, you know, break between the inner and the outer, there was, it was permeable. It was something that, you know, um, it it wasn't a split cut like Descartes, you know, it was something where uh, we shared. Participatory is a word I I use a lot now. So this is something that, and also the notion that values, I mean, there's, okay, it's something. True. Well, it's like Pravda, you know, the Russian word Pravda means truth. And obviously it was ironic during the Soviet period, that was the name of the newspaper. so I think it's, you know, it's a private enterprise running it these days, but it has two different meanings. It means true in the sense that yes, um, Moscow is the capital of Russia. That's true. But uh, true in the sense that thou shalt love, you know, thy fellow man. Well, that's true, but it's not true in the same way as that Moscow is the, capital of Russia, it's a different kind of truth, but it isn't a truth that we can pinpoint, you know, it's not a Western rational, it's something that the West has been debating, you know, for ages, we have so many schools of philosophy. About it. So, but they're interested in that kind of idea of true, and they really believe it is something that, you know, you, you can perceive, you can intuit in some way. And they adopt different ideas like that from the West. And this is what informs these different philosophers at, at this time. And this is why when you have the, the sp- eruption of Russian literature in the late 19th century people like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky It's it knocks it, it just completely overwhelms um, Western readers because they haven't really encountered anything like that. It's this kind of volcano of kind of moral and existential and spiritual, you know, I mean, and, and, you know, Tolstoy has all those, uh, those passages of War and Peace where uh, the, the, There's a Martinist in, in War and Peace and there's uh, the Freemasons as well. So again I mean, all that, those things were really out in front in, in Russian culture at that time, too. They offered an alternative to uh, either the mainstream church or, or you know Western rationalism. So these are real, real powerful questions in, in Russian culture in a way that they, they're there in the West, but they never quite ignited in quite the same way.
0: Uh, I want to do a little shout out for somebody who turned me on to, Sergey Bulgakov, 1871 to 1944. Uh, Sofik economy. Um, stewardship of the planet, a um, the, 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 the philosophy that has a sense of Sophia, sustainability, again that cosmic mysticism going on, um, that, that there's this relationship between nature and human beings and philosophically that's crucially important. Did that you know, these things coming from that same school you know, things that are are moral, what is right, what is mm. good, what is true, how should we interact? Uh, possibly, mm. uh, I'm speculating here, an influence from that natural philosophy. Uh, the kind of thing that, as you said, just self said a few minutes ago, you just wouldn't weren't really happening for, for the most part of Western philosophy. Oh, um.
1: uh, no, I mean, uh, you mentioned uh, Bogolkov and um, he he's one in a line of what you want to call the sophianic or so he's in, in a school of sophiology uh, um, going back to Soloviev. And, you know, we know in, in Christian mysticism, there's a whole um, school of that going back to Burma. Uh, uh, but um, Soloviev had these three visions of Sophia, you know, divine Sophia, the not the fallen Gnostic uh, wisdom of of God, of the divine. And um, uh, one was in the, one was in a, a railway car, uh, one when he, when he was quite young. It was like a, the sky had turned all these blue flowers. And then one when he was in London and he was studying at the British Museum and she told him to go to Cairo. And then there's a whole funny story about him getting kidnapped by Bedouins and all this kind of weird kind of thing. But, um, but he had um, this built up, this whole philosophy based on, you know, it's the love of wisdom. You know, it's the, it's the filiosophia. You know, so it isn't this logic. And again, he was, like I said, he did this whole book about justification and good. So it's not like, oh, we don't need logic. I mean, he knew he, his logic back and forth, but that wasn't enough. It wasn't sufficient. There were more we had to pass, you know, those, pass those realms into the metallurgical realms of this kind of revelation and all that. And so there's a whole school in, in Russian philosophy uh, based on that. And there's a whole, where the feminine is very much a part of it, where, again, that's something that was rejected. In the West, Um, and uh, as you already you can tell from you know talking about Sofia. and um, Bogokov, he also he starts out as a Marxist, as many of them do, because the main thing the main thing is like the horrible conditions of everyone's life in Russia. You know, you had the serfs for centuries; that was something. What what are we going to do about the serfs? This is like this question that occupied everybody for centuries and by this time you know they had freedom and all that but still the conditions in Russia were just absolutely you know impossible and but then he realized that Marxism wasn't going to answer the questions and um, he talks about being in the Caucasus in the mountains and having this vision of beauty of nature and all that and he suddenly realized that nature was this living presence this uh, a kind of a who you know rather than a what and that would be that would be sort of this part of the Sophianic kind of ecology where it's not something um that's just there for us to use, it's something for us to you know participate with. And, so and if, if my... is
0: is is that in English? <laughs> Listeners who may want to follow oh. up with Sergei Bulgakov and his um, have... nature mystic nature mystical revelatory stuff. I
1: I yeah, I, I I think there's at least a collection of of his um I, I've seen a few of them on um, Amazon, dare I say it. But... <laughs> probably, at your sho- probably at your shop and you don't even know. Because um, 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 I, I know uh, back in the day, back in the 90s, uh, Lindisfarne and um, the Esselin Institute, they had a whole series of these Russian philosophers from that time. And so they did publish some of his. and They published some of Badaev and Soloviev and all that. So um, they're, they're still around. Um, there's probably some stuff online. There's a book of his called The Unfading Light. And this is where he talks about this this transformative experience he, he has with beauty and again it's this thing where beauty is going to save the world and it's like that it goes back to the icons too mm. um when the icons were the way almost more than anything else that the greek orthodox christianity spread throughout the, the people uh, the pagan way stayed on for a long time and often they blended together there's this notion of devovery which is this double belief which is not you know too uncommon right you know there's so many Different instances of um, folk or pagan beliefs blending with, you know, Christian ones, and you know, um, we can find the black Madonnas in the churches, and so so it's not that unusual. But it, uh, it was uh, somehow through the icons and not any kind of, you know, theological arguments that, that people were, yes, you know, it was like a transfigured um, experience for them to see this sort of beauty, and um, again, it goes back to Queen Olga going to Constantinople. So there's some sense in some way that they're able to. Uh, see this kind of religious transformative effect in art that um, we kind of have to strain, you know, to, to, to see that here. I mean, not that individuals don't see it, but to kind of, you know, have its place in the Western uh, school of art, you know, or aesthetic theory, it's kind of has to strain a bit, I would say. I was um, just by sheer
0: coincidence, I was reading a book of uh, folklore of plants and um I came across this old old uh, book in French from about 150 years ago by de who's who related a Russian practice whereby um, on a certain day of the year you could go to speak with the Czar of the Forest, <laughs> and lay out birch branches in a circle and then stand on a tree stump and and uh, look between bend over and look between your legs and then address the, the Czar of the Forest and um, put put your petitions to, to him and. Uh, also various things you can leave petitions to the czar and the czarina of the forest uh, this is from something i was reading a few weeks ago uh, on leaves and they would write back to you on bits of birch or bark or leaves so certainly you have that everywhere that there's a belief that the fairies live in the in the fairy dells that there are these beings who live in nature but um, just speaking about the, the bulgakov sense of uh, nature uh, having consciousness and being a who rather than a what um, if you're in a, if you're in a world where people are still doing those practices, they're speaking to the Queen of the Forest or the the King of the Forest, the czar of the Forest, and and expecting an answer, then you're uh, it's you know, that materialism never really, really deeply takes hold once you once you get out once you get out of the uh, once you get out of the library, really, but certainly once you get out of the cities.
1: Um, well, I mean, it seems to be a resurgence of of that or. Uh, maybe not even resurgence, maybe it was always there and it's just somehow more, more uh, visible now. Um, but uh, there's a lot of resurgence of native Slavic uh, faith. Um, I don't know if you know about Anastasianism, which is um, a kind of new thing related to that. It has to do with um, these trees. They're called the ringing cedars of Siberia. And uh, apparently they're, they're a, a species of pine, I was told, but in any case. Um, but uh, there's a story of um, it's kind of like a Castaneda and Don Juan sort of story where there's uh, a, a, a writer, a guy named Vladimir Megre. He goes to Siberia for um, some reason and he has a series of strange mystical experiences around these trees. And then he meets this woman, her name is Anastasia. And she tells him all about this, you know, this faith of nature and getting back to nature and having to go back to the Vedic times in some way, the times when the gods were closest to the earth. And um, she passes on her knowledge to him. He spends some time with her. Uh, She lives in the Taiga. It's this, what they call the snow forest in um, Siberia. so I guess, I don't know, she's a shamaness or something along those lines. But the story is that he's then, Told that you must, you know, take this knowledge and you know take it back and share it. And so he writes a series of books, and apparently, like they're novels, but they're supposed to be based on this real experience. And apparently, they're you know worldwide bestsellers, and how um, they, you know, I don't know, some millions and millions of, of readers. And what's this case. guy's name again? Um, I think it's Victor Maygray. Let me let me tell you, It's uh, not May Gray, Not Maygray the uh, detective. Uh, let me see if I can even if I can find him here. Just just bear with me. He's so, very intriguing, um, but it's um, yeah. I mean, it's a whole series of books. Apparently, it's it. They're like uh, yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, Vladimir Vladimir Megre M E G R E. Wow. Yeah, and 1975, uh, entrepreneur and writer Vladimir Megre took a trip to Siberia. There, he underwent a series of strange mystical experiences that were somehow linked to the sacred, ringing Siberian cedar trees. Which apparently a species of pine. But uh, <laughs> and, and and
0: of course, in the Baltic, you know, yeah. post, you know, uh, you know, post, post the end of the Soviet era, the revival of paganism as a religion, which had been, you know, very, very much underground in Lithuania and Latvia, the Romuva movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and I imagine things are happening in Russia, but we happen to know the Romuva people because in 1989 they wrote the pagan federation in in England. And right. a chap called Jonas Trinkunas wrote, and he, he was a guy who had been, I think, a story, if, if, if I'm remembering rightly, he'd been a university professor, and they'd been doing you know, bonfires in the woods and singing the old pagan songs, and that had been um, discovered. And, um, and he was then became, uh, was promoted by the government to be a janitor. And it was <laughs> in punishment. Uh, but when they, uh, you know, when, when it all came down, they really all came out, and they wrote shortly after the fall of the Berlin Wall to the Pagan Federation to say, "Look, mm-hmm. we've been here. We were, we were here in secret, and now we're not in secret anymore. And apparently, they're still going. I think his daughter is carrying it. His wife are carrying it on. Um, but so you got you got these various different things happening. Yep. This is from the uh, that, that environment. Um, mm-hmm. Be interesting to see if Bulgakov has a. Well,
1: has I mean, I say all of these all of these people are apparently are being reread now. Mm-hmm. Um, all new editions of their work. I mean, i have kind of, you know, I got that from whatever research I did. I don't have exact figures, but that's, that's sort of the idea that all of this stuff, and again, it's, it's something that's in the sort of government circles as well. It's not just, I mean, there's all these, you know, you must have heard all these weird stories that uh, back in the 2000s when the, like Darth Vader's were running for city councils and Chewbacca's, like, you know, at regional elections. So there was all this kind of weird, stage strange kind of uh, I don't know what do you want to call it Uh, kind of street art magic in the Russian politics already I mean so much of it is this kind of VR reality that um, you know Putin has controlled through his he's not he's not working for him anymore to spin doctor in the 2000s and um, he manned you know all of the uh, mass media so he was able to create all this kind of stuff and so within that all these strange sorts of things came out I mean this is kind of Dugan in, in some ways got out to like a wide uh, audience um, and um so again it's um it, it's it, it's more out in the open now, so it's all very 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 strange um, I mean I was in um, Esalen last last year through a seminar and uh, uh, met Michael Murphy, who's one of the founders. And as he said, he was one of the people who had this kind of exchange uh, thing going on uh, that was not outside of the government. So it just was between private people, his group in Esalen and Esalen people in Russia where they had this Skylink. This is way before the internet. And then they, he said, the thing is, the old story is, if you scratch, scratch a Russian, you'll find a mystic. And he said, well, it's true. He said, we met, people, we met people like that. He said, the kind of people that were going out of their way to come to us, we just bumped into them there all the time. And there is this sense that it's just, um, it's just more in, the, in their world, in their blood. So it's not that weird, not that strange. And some, I mean, all these different, i mean say these strange uh, things that strike us as strange that were, you know, out of the picture during the Soviet time, they're back again, the Cosmists, this is another group, this weird uh, futurist uh, group. And uh, again, from the time of the silver age that, um, you know, um, had to stop at that point. But they had this old weird idea about reviving the dead and inhabiting planets out in the space because that's where we'll have to house the dead because there'll be too many of them, they won't fit on the earth. And that's in one way, that's how the Soviet space program got started. Oh my word. (laughs) Those kind of visionary ideas. Wow. So it's a great time for
0: um, the return of, of Holy Russia. Well, it's an interesting It was a good
1: I time. I think, think, it's, I think they it's, think it is. Think <laughs> it is. So, I mean, you know, yeah, it was good enough time for me to think. I, I just I knew nothing about Russia aside from you know a little bit. I knew around the revolution and that's Putin really, and I mean I, I I didn't intend to write a history of Russia, but I just got so excited learning things. Like, oh yeah, what happens next? And it just started a narrative, and I said, well. I
0: can't stop That's what really what struck me about the book is it's it is it is it is it's an interesting history of Russia. You you go from the beginning and you and you take it through, but it's a history of ideas and it's a history of mythical ideas, a history of philosophical ideas, uh, as it links in with politics, which brings you back to you know those two strands that you weave together, in so much of your work, which is mm-hmm. politics and the occult politics and the mystical politics and and the philosophical. Um, so yeah, um, thank you for writing it. Thank you very, oh,
1: my, very much my, for writing oh, it. Well, thank you for reading it. <laughs> <laughs> what are
0: you, tell me, what are you working on now? We have ah, two minutes. I want to tell you, okay. just, just what, what can we look forward to?
1: Um, well, I'm working on a book about precognitive dreams, mostly my own um, now. And uh, that came out of a talk I gave at Brompton Cemetery last last year, last year around this time. I did a talk about hypnagogia, you know, the in-between sleeping waking state. And I tagged in precognition because since about 1980, I've been, recording my dreams off and on. And I've got dozens and dozens of precognitive dreams. So I thought I might as well try and get a book out of them. Wow. Precognitive dream is a dream where you get a little bit of the future in it. And yeah. uh, it's not, it's nothing I ever predict, but I find out that day or the next day that, oh damn, this was in my dream.
0: Amazing. We're gonna, we're gonna, but right now we're getting, right now we're concentrating on Russia. Uh, we're going to wind it up there, Gary. Thank you so so much for your time, and it's so good to chat with you. And Yeah, um, yeah we'll, we'll 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 meet in person when Treadwell's reopens, and I think right. you know, everybody's listening. We feel the same way about that, you know, whether they're in London it. or not. You know, we we will meet in the flesh again.
1: Okay, I look forward to it. Until then, <laughs> have a good lockdown. Cheerio, cheerio. All right, bye. Okay. Bye bye.
0: We hope you enjoyed this Treadwell's podcast. For information on future events as well as books, tarot cards, candles and more, please visit www.tredwells-london.com.